The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And guys, what else would this be? It's Halloween Town for Myth Movie Night. I'm so excited. It's really nice to kind of revisit some of the classic movies of our childhood, Amanda. Like, I was always a hocus pocus girl myself, but I know that I have a strong love for Halloween Town. Yeah, I definitely do as well. And listen, in this dumpster fire of a world, as we all prepare to uh, make our plans, if you're eligible voters in the U.S. or to follow up with all your people and friends and family who are and urge them to vote for Joe Biden, sometimes you just need to put on a movie that'll make you happy. And sometimes that movie is Halloween Town. And you know what? Usually during this month, it is Halloween Town. (laughs) Absolutely. And you know who else makes me happy? Is it our new patrons? Our new patrons, the folks who gave their hard-earned dollars to us to help us keep making this podcast. Zany Delaney, great name. Louise Megan Clayton, Murder Penguin. Wow. Also a great name. And Patricia, really coming through, everybody. Really, really good. Such a wide variety of names for patrons. We also would love to take this time, as we do every episode, to thank our supporting producer-level patrons, Philip, Alicia, Allison, Deborah, Hannah, Jen, Jessica, Keegan, Nieselkins, Landon, Liz, Megan, Megan Linger, Megan Moon, Molly, Neil, Nikki, Phil Fresh, Paul. Riley, Sarah, and Skyla, as well as our legend-level patrons, Audra, Chelsea, Drew, Eden, Francis, Jack Marie, Lada, Livy, Mark, Morgan, Necrofancy, Renegade, and BME Up Scotty. We would take you all to an ice cream shop run by a Yeti. You'll understand why later. Oh, 100%. Amanda, what have you been uh, listening to, reading, watching lately? I know you just took a little vacation. Did you find anything fun to entertain yourself? I did. And thank you for uh, for letting me take a true week off, Julia. Of course. And I found a fantastic podcast uh, recommended by friend of the show, Julia Tertian and previous guest called The Walk-In by Chef L. Simone Scott in partnership with America's Test Kitchen. Ooh. It is a podcast that explores the unheard stories of the food world's difference makers. So it's not, you know, the celebrity chefs that, you know, you hear mentioned in every single like article about food. It's about like what actually happens between a first day of work for a person and the like, quote, overnight success. A lot happens. And it's something that rarely is discussed really beyond a small circle of trusted friends. Um, So Chef Simone Scott is a fantastic host. And the previous guests like just in the last couple of weeks like my bride sisters and karen washington were both absolutely fantastic guests so i highly recommend they just wrapped up their first season and you should subscribe to the walk-in now that sounds incredible i'm getting really into cooking podcasts lately so i'm gonna have to add this to my list it's really really great many you know what else is really great is it well it hasn't happened yet but our, is it live, gonna be show? our live show it is yes. it's gonna be our live show it is happening if you're listening to this the day the episode comes out it's happening tonight but if you're listening afterwards you can still buy a ticket and get a digital download and watch the video of the live show whenever you want. 
You absolutely can. We were planning on doing a lot of touring this year, and it was a huge bummer not to be able to see everybody in person. But we are getting really into these digital live shows, both because it's a way for you to come see us no matter where you live in the world or what your ability to like get out or get childcare or get transportation is. And also, we just get to hang out with you, and we love that, and we love doing live shows. So we are doing this today, the 28th, 8 p.m. Eastern. But like Julia said, you can also buy a ticket just 12 bucks and get a digital download of the show after it happens. So go to spiritspodcast.com slash live. That will take you to the page where you can get a ticket to watch us live or to watch the replay afterward. It's going to be a lot of fun. I just put the finishing touches on creepier cool and y'all, you're not ready. You're not ready for this. Oh my goodness. I can't wait. You may also want to just keep an eye out on Halloween as you're doing your, you know, your many Halloween things, safely social distanced, making sure that, you know, you have your voting plan all in place and just maybe go to multitude.production slash merch. Maybe you just check out the merch store. Maybe you just go to spiritspodcast.com slash merch. It'll take you to the same place. And I don't know, maybe there'll be something fun there. I don't know. I don't know. Who's to say? Who's to say? So listen, everybody, it's rough out there and we love you. And we hope to bring you, you know, 45 or so minutes of, uh, of smiles and laughs and Halloween nostalgia with episode 204. We stopped numbering them, by the way, because there's too many and we're past 200. It's okay. <laughs> Spirits podcast, Halloween Town for Myth Movement Night. Amanda, another movie, another spooky not so spooky movie, actually, this time. Usually we go for spookier movies, but this is lighthearted and nice and nostalgic. Happy Halloween! Happy Halloween! It's time for a Disney Channel original movie. No Disney Channel original movie hits harder for me nostalgia-wise and I think repeat enjoyment-wise than Halloween Town. Really? Okay, yeah. I think I was more of a hocus pocus kind of gal myself, but I do feel like... Halloween Town is up there in terms of rewatchability for a Disney Channel original movie. I bet Hocus Pocus yeah. isn't a Disney Channel original movie and people are going to pin me on that, but I stand by it. It's got the similar vibe. Similar vibe, definitely, in terms of like Halloween movies that are ostensibly for kids, but also good to watch. Mm -hmm. um, and I hadn't seen Hocus Pocus until we watched it for Spirits. Ah, I also think that the sequels to Halloween Town are not trash all the way down. There is some stuff in there, you know, and I appreciate a series. I haven't rewatched the sequels much. I do remember really liking Halloween Town High or Halloween High. I can't remember which, but yeah, Halloween Town High. I really liked the like, we're all adults kind of now. And, you know, we have big teen problems and not just I'm 13 and my grandma wants to teach me magic, but my mom won't let me. I think it's a very like fan impulse. And I definitely identify as a fan, particularly like culturally coming up in fandom on the internet um, to just to like want more of the thing and having a lot of a media property like does a lot to make up for quality <laughs> you know like if there is something where there's lots and lots of it to watch and analyze um i feel like i can put up with a little bit you know quality up and down because of the volume uh versus like a standalone movie has to be like so good in order to really you know be resonant for me I think that's true. And I also think of the movie franchises that have so many sequels that are very Halloween horror based, like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. You pick like the gems out of those because it's a quantity over quality thing, but there are little tiny gems stuck in there. And I think that kind of makes a, a, a franchise good, you know, they can't all be winners is what it comes down to at the end of the day. 
It does. That was my experience of watching like Buffy and the X-Files, you know, where there's some there's some real uh, there's some slogs to get through in there. Or you can kind of bounce around to the highlights or you can put up with the slogs because they maybe contribute character development or world building that really pay off in other ways. Um, but that's why I don't know. Hating is boring. Haters are boring. You know, like find things to like in the stuff that's around you. Yeah. And that's how I feel. And like the things you like. No one's stopping you. It's OK. Like the things you like. As long as they're not actively hurting other people. So let's talk about this movie, Amanda. I believe it is my turn for the summary. Oh, I have the timer all pulled up. Oh, Don't boy. Worry. All right. Here we go. I got three paragraphs written for this. So we'll see if I can get through them in two minutes. All right. Uh, everybody, if you want to avoid spoilers, uh, hop forward about three minutes. All right, Julia. Three, two, one, go. So we start the movie on Halloween and are introduced to Marnie, Dylan, Sophie, and their mom, Gwen. Gwen refuses to let the kids celebrate Halloween in what we assume is kind of like a weird, this is a pagan holiday kind of vibe. Yeah. But with the arrival of Grandma Aggie, played by the incredible Debbie Reynolds, it becomes clear that Aggie, Gwen, and their four Marnie are witches. Aggie wants to train Marnie now that she's 13 because she needs to learn how to use her powers or she'll lose them forever. But Gwen is against this because she wants to raise her kids as mortals. Aggie says she needs help in her home, the aptly named Halloween Town. Uh, it has bad shit happening, but Gwen refuses to help. So Aggie leaves before midnight and Marnie and Dylan sneak aboard the like short bus that she's taking to Halloween Town full of monsters. But they lose their grandma once they arrive because shit is just wild there. Uh, Sophie also appears having followed her siblings and they run into the mayor Calabar who gets them a skeleton cabbie to bring them to their grandma's house. And grandma's just like super happy to see them and promises to start training Marnie. But first she's got to take care of the shit that's happening in town. So she's going to activate Merlin's talisman with a spell and a potion that will help defeat the evil that she's aware of. So they head into town to get the ingredients for the potion where Marnie talks to the hot goblin Luke, which, spoiler alert, the actress that played Marnie and the actor who played Luke dated for a while. Gwen shows up looking for her kids, tries to take him home, but she can't get a bus. So she goes to the mayor, not knowing it's Calabar, who is the mayor and also her ex. So Calabar leaves to like take care of some stuff and the gang sees Aggie leaving with hot goblin Luke and assume that she's in trouble. So they follow her to an old movie theater. Aggie's facing the hooded demon that she saw like earlier on. And when she refuses to give him the talisman, the demon freezes both Gwen and Aggie and the kids escape and they go find the ingredients to the potion, which is like a hair of a werewolf, the sweat of a ghost and the vampire's fang. And they go to place the talisman in the big old jack-o'-lantern that they saw when they got into town in the first place. So they go do that. The demon shows up, reveals that it's Calabar, who's it's time. Oh, damn it. Hurry up, hurry up. Okay, it's Calabar. The demon's Calabar. He's pissed that Gwen married another dude, which is a terrible motivation. He wants so to bad. convince the Halloween town residents that should, they should take over the mortal world. Marnie manages to complete the spell, which unfreezes all the other people, and they use their magic to defeat Calabar. Everything ends happy. The family goes home to the mortal world. Gwen and Aggie agree to start training Marnie as a witch. And all is well forever, and there are no sequels. No, not at all. <laughs> Literally, the next one is called Calabar's Revenge. So if you hadn't seen this yeah. film. <laughs> it happens. I uh, There's lots to talk about in the plot. Can we just talk about these actors for a second as well? Mm -hmm. A, it's Debbie Reynolds. Oh, <laughs> That's amazing. Debbie Reynolds. She's, just, she's playing such a, a like, er grandma, you know? It's a grandma who, like, wants what's best for you, gives you candy, like, does cool shit, and is, like, an adventurer. And I think that's amazing. Also, Debbie Reynolds just is, like, the beginning of a line of fabulous actresses, which I really appreciate. You yeah. have Debbie Reynolds, and then you have Carrie Fisher, and now you have Billy Lord, who's really coming into her own right now, and just, like, a lot of teen and young adult drama stuff, and I absolutely yeah. adore them. Um, the, the, you know, kind of protagonist, Kimberly J. Brown, 
is also a Disney Channel original movie. Uh, she was like quite a cast member, you know. Mm. She was in Quince, uh, a, a TV movie about a girl who whose uh, mom has quintuplets after her. Uh, and as a kid with twin siblings who are younger than me, I was like, wow, that would be worse. <laughs> that um, would be. Which I think is very fun. And then Judith Hogue, or Hoag, I don't know how to say her last name, um, but the mom is is like a working actor. She is the longest IMDb I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Any procedural that you've ever watched, Grey's Anatomy, Castle, CSI's, various, you know, uh, Bones, like shows that you might rewatch, NYPD Blue, Seventh Heaven, when you're sick, she has been on and I respect it so fucking hard. Oh, absolutely. I think the funny part too is I was looking up the actor who played Luke and he played Hey Arnold for two seasons. Oh my God, I didn't know that. Yeah, they replaced the first season guy because his voice changed and then this guy got it for two seasons and his voice changed so they had to change it again. It's a wild ride to be a young adult voice actor. He was on Gilmore Girls too. Was he? Huh, good for him. Yeah. Young Christopher, so it sounds like just fleeting. Young Christopher. Um, But yeah, I just thought it was uh, was really fun. Yeah. Talking specifically about the movie as well, uh, it is that kind of Disney Channel original movie nostalgia that I feel like a lot of us have. But I definitely didn't remember how diverse the monster and mythological creatures are in this film. Like one of Marnie's lines is asking if Halloween Town has, quote, banshees and dibbocks there too, which I think is, you don't hear about a dibbock that much. Yeah. You know, and one of my personal favorite touches to the film is when the kids are out shopping with Aggie and they go to the ice cream store and it's run by a Yeti. Like, that's extremely cute. I love the kind of personalized touches to like, oh, of course, the Yeti who's used to the cold wouldn't mind the freezers and stuff of the ice cream store. That's adorable. It's such good world building. And I think particularly the framing device of, you know, a kid realizing that there is more and she is special, you know, and like there is a whole different world out there, whether you're talking about that in Narnia or like Diane Duane. So you want to be a wizard, which was huge for me as a kid. Uh, Pendragon, which is like a bizarre series that I just read a lot of when I was young. It It is setting itself up for like very impressive world building because you literally have a moment of like of like falling in to a whole new world. And I think the first few minutes of Marnie's being in Halloween Town is just so like magical. It's beautiful. It really is. Yeah, it's and they put a lot of effort into it, especially the uh, physical special effects and the costuming and the uh, makeup design. It's all really, really good. Like for for that time period, and I imagine what the budget was. Yeah, I don't think it's distracting. You know, sometimes you watch a, a B movie or a TV movie, and you're like, you know, that's a mask. But these are not like Guillermo del Toro situations, mm-hmm. but. They're not distracting. And I think that is a a good sort of like baseline for a movie of this kind of tier. For Halloween season, for the 31 days of Halloween, Jake and I watch something scary every single day, or at least Halloween inspired. And one of the evenings we watched the Goosebumps episodes, The Haunted Mask and The Haunted Mask Part 2. And let me tell you fairly good makeup much better in the second one because you could tell they're like well a lot hinges on this mask being really good so we need it <laughs> to kind be of in better. the title we need it to be better in the second one if we're gonna do this again so I, I really appreciate you bringing up the world building though because one of the things that struck me while watching the film and then made me think about like magic systems in a bunch of other fantasy media is that the witches in this film are hereditary witches Generally, most fantasy media that I can think of, like at the moment, 
has an aspect of hereditary witchcraft that you're like born with magic blood or have a magic ancestor. And because you have that quote, something special about you, you can train to become a full-fledged magic user. And this becomes a question that started tickling something in my brain because I feel as though in classic folktales, magic was a thing that like anyone can learn. Yeah. You didn't have to be special or be born into a specific bloodline to be magic. It, w- it was a skill that you could learn like embroidery or physics, you know, it, it just required attaining the, the right knowledge. So I went and I found an article from Gizmodo from like nearly a decade ago, which is titled, oh When God. Did Magic Become Elitist? by David Liss. I am intrigued. When? Okay. So uh, Liss points out that a lot of pop culture depictions of magic nowadays even make the distinction that magic users are portrayed as biologically different from ordinary people, which is true of this movie. Like, witches are distinct from mortals. They live in entirely separate worlds. But Liss makes the point that in the past, before the pop culture of the day, he says that you could get magic one of two ways. And here's his quote. Through learning the craft, either from another practitioner or from books, or through obtaining magic from a powerful being. Think Faust or the classic demonized witch, both of whom get their power from Satan. Anyone could learn learn magic as long as they had access to the knowledge or could make connection to the right supernatural being. So to kind of put it in Dungeons and Dragons terms, because I do think that it does a good job differentiating the different types of magic, magic users of the past were either wizards who learned their magic through scholarship or warlocks who made a deal for power. Modern magic in pop culture is almost entirely sorcerers. It's magic gained through magical bloodlines. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious, Amanda, if you can think of many magic systems in current pop culture that don't have this. I mean, off the top of my head, I can't really think of ones where it's just like, yeah, I trained with this dude. There's nothing special about me. I just like met this guy and he said he'll teach me magic, you know? Nothing comes to mind immediately. And uh, conspirators, we know there are so many examples of all the things we're going to talk about. We definitely welcome you being like, hey, my favorite example of A, B, and C is this. Um, but we make a 45-minute podcast and we cannot mention everything. So please don't email us to yell at us. Um, okay, great. I am now thinking about um, So You Want to Be a Wizard, that uh, that series that I mentioned mm-hmm. a few minutes ago, because the whole conceit is like a girl walks into a library, picks up a book, and it says, so you want to be a wizard? And she's like, I guess. And then through reading only, you know, just through study, you gain power. Yeah. And I thought that that was so compelling. A, because I was a girl in a library, like walking in to pick up a book. And it was just like a wonderful synchronicity. But also because it doesn't require you to be anybody special. Um, and now as you lay it out like that, um, and the author lays it out like that, I'm finding a lot more problematic about, you know, the construction of magic as a thing that like certain bloodlines have. Like, oh my God, we hardly even need to say it because it is so obvious. I really love the sort of, you know, practical magic, the idea that you can learn that it's a transmutation of energy and that it is more kind of like, you know, either alchemical or like a, a muscle, you know, that you can like exercise um, to, to gain more power than you had before. Yeah, exactly. I thought it was really interesting. I Another example that I thought of once I actually really like dug in and thought about it wasn't like a surface level like, oh, here's a good example. But one that I recently read and also talked about on Exolore was The Mermaid, the Witch, and the Sea by Maggie Takuda Hall. And I recommended it on the show earlier as well. But that is an instance of magic being taught and the specific person does not have to be special. They just have to learn from someone who already has mastery over the craft. So I know that there are examples. It's just they're not the huge in media examples that you immediately think of when someone says magic fantasy book. 
Yeah, you're like, uh, someone discovers they're magical and does stuff. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, they were magical this whole time and they didn't realize, you know? Now, because they're special, they get to go to a school and learn how to be more magic. And I mean, it's not that different, is it, from a fairy tale where it's like, you know, kid grows up in hard circumstances, then realizes they're a prince or a princess. It's like there was something special about you all along, but it's something inherited and not something you achieve. And also that it's good, apparently, to be part of that exclusionary, you know, elite, that it's it's almost always presented as a good thing. You just like ascend to a better world with better like physical resources and or like political, cultural, magical capital uh, versus like, oh, hey, if there's something like that was like my question in, you know, Harry Potter, which again, we, we all think about differently now than we used to. But why aren't you using magic to solve disease? Like that is why? Why isn't anybody doing that throughout the entire book series? But instead, it's sort of like in this bubble, like that is the place where you want to be. And everybody else is left behind is like suckers. Yeah. And this makes a good point too. like talking about like, oh, I thought I was one thing and then I discovered I wasn't. It, it, that very much plays into a fantasy that I think that a lot of like younger kids and young adults experience where it's like, oh, oh totally. What if my parents weren't my parents? Or what if I was adopted and my real family was uh, a royalty or something else? So the magic plays into that kind of idea of like, oh, well, I'm elite because I have powers that other people don't. And Liz makes some really good points about that. So I'm going to I'm going to continue uh, extrapolating off of his article. So yeah, and we'll have a link to this in the description so you can uh, read it yourself. Yes, I'll link all three articles that I'm going to reference in this episode. Julia, I love a footnoted episode. <laughs> Liz makes a point that everyday ordinary people prove themselves to be magic users in one way or another in our lives. So like saying a little prayer or one could argue a spell when you lose something in the hopes that it will reappear. Uh, what we talked about in our 200th episode where you can accidentally put the evil eye on something by coveting it and then reverse it by simply touching the item. That's a form of everyday magic. It's a force of will, believing that it will happen happen and then it happens. And I, I think the movie kind of plays with that slightly if we ignore the fact that the Cromwells are able to do what they can because they are Cromwells and that makes them witches. So for instance, when facing the locked gate at their grandma's house, Sophie's able to turn the lock into a frog without anyone even noticing because she just imagined it really hard. She willed it into existence. And this is why magic was and to a lesser extent still is persecuted because as Liz points out in his article, it is inherently democratic. The old form of magic where anyone can learn magic is an inherently democratic system. So it gives power to those not in power. And, and witch hunts were quite literally the powerful waging war against the powerless because they dared attempt to gain power. So therefore, what we once considered witchcraft, like uh, the use of folk healing and general practices that we now consider, quote, superstitious, become downplayed in order to avoid persecution. So there was no open practicing, no open worship, because that made those practicing magic targets. And in a way, the practice of magic became ordinary, which Liss argues is why pop culture changed the magic system from an open system to a closed system. You were born into magic. It was an elite system that you were lucky to be a part of. It's no longer democratic. I don't have much to add because this is blowing my mind and I think it is really, really well put. Yeah, no, he absolutely does a great job with it. And I, you know, I never really thought of a magic as a way of seizing power, but he brings up a great example about how like the Romans would 
persecute magic users as long as they were practicing something that wasn't just like folk healing because they were worried that enough power, enough people, you know, cursing a political figure or an emperor would, you know, bring down that emperor. And therefore, it's the masses using what little power they have in order to seize more power. It's sort of a, a populist dream, right? That the structures, power structures that make the powerful powerful, um, which you can define in like many different terms, whether, you know, economic, religious, all this kind of stuff, that you can overcome that or beat that even with some sense of like collective will and that, you know, you can will yourself out of a situation, you can will a situation different. Um, that is what I always kind of consider the like intention based magic versus kind of like alchemical magic. Uh, that to me is such a like it is a, a way of making what we wish would happen happen. And that is so powerful, especially you know, like I, I get why a lot of the time the sort of like I discover I'm special magical narratives start with like a person in hard circumstances because, you know, y some part of you wants to believe that like surely I don't deserve this. Um, and I think taking it the next step to surely no one deserves this, you know, and like confronting that in your text instead of an individual like, oh, good, I, I, I knew I didn't deserve to be, you know in whatever circumstance they were in. That is the challenge. And that is what I, I hope, you know, and know that more people do. Um, and lots of contemporary writers are doing in speculative fiction and sci-fi and like all kinds of places. But yeah, I, ugh, so many thoughts. I'm very curious now because I'm thinking about the idea of, I, I, I hate talking about the bootstrap narrative because it's, it's just terrible. It's a terrible idea. It's a terrible concept. It's supposed to be, you know, a, an impossible thing to do, but people take it very seriously now. You can't. You literally can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's where the phrase comes from. <laughs> but the idea of the the democratic system of learning magic still requires you to have a certain amount of privilege. You have to find someone to educate you, or you have to find a way of contacting a power stronger than you are in order to gain more power. Yeah, knowledge is not democratic, you know, by definition. Yes, but the idea that if you have the resources to find those things that you are able to move up in life is interesting to me. I don't think it's necessarily fair or good or like, you know, uh, inherently philosophically good, but I think it is interesting because it is a little bit different from the idea of being born into privilege versus the quote unquote magical pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Even that latter scenario involves um, other structural uh, ingredients, you know, like the ingredient is not just a tutor or not just a text. It's, you know, time, literacy, uh, resources, whether that's, you know, income so you don't have to do other things or uh, buying materials. And I think that's kind of the unspoken reality of it all is even if it's like theoretically anybody could be the chosen one, you know, or could be uh, the, the pupil or the protagonist. Not everyone has the sometimes just like luck uh, to run into the right person or other like physical circumstances to allow them to kind of uh, claim and to grow this power. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a good time for us to grab a refill and I can talk about kind of the practical real world scenarios of what hereditary witchcraft looks like. Let's do it. Amanda, like on the day of my birthday, I received a package in the mail that I had forgot was coming. But it was my exclusively picked just for me clothing from Stitch Fix. Oh my God. It's like a gift where they actually know the size, budget, and style you're looking for. And they don't just buy you another pair of leggings when I have enough leggings. It's so nice. Amanda, this one was so punk. They sent me like a pair of like dark 
plaid pants with like extra zippers on the on the pockets oh it my was, god it, it was so my style it's not even funny it was like a happy birthday to me and that's because stitch fix offers clothing hand selected by expert stylists for your unique size your style and your budget and it's a completely different way of like finding clothes that are right for you and every piece is chosen for your fit and your lifestyle and it's an easy solution for finding what makes you look good and feel your best like they they just have me nailed down and the best part is no subscription required. You can try it once or set up automatic deliveries. You just pay a $20 styling fee for each box. But the best part is if you keep anything from the box, it's credited toward that purchase and there are no hidden fees ever. Yeah, Stitch Fix has free shipping, easy returns and exchanges, and a prepaid return envelope is included. So like when I go to return it, I just have to drop it off at the post office and then I'm done. I don't have to wait in line or anything like that. I don't need a printer. Don't need a printer. We're millennials. We don't own printers. I do own a printer, but it's uh, because I <laughs> no, we a lot do. Of we do. I, I have a business. Yeah. <laughs> but you can get started today at stitchfix.com/spirits, and you'll get twenty five percent off when you keep everything in your fix. That's stitchfix.com/spirits for twenty five percent off when you keep everything in your fix. Stitchfix.com/spirits. We are also sponsored, Julia, by um, somebody that I am very glad we got into contact with, and that I have on my phone and in my life. Uh, it's Calm and Obviously, uh, right now, hard to sleep, hard to get through the day, um, hard to turn off your brain at any point, whether you get up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom and then lie back down. Like, this is a great way to, and time to think about all the things I can't change uh, in my life. So, when that happens to me, I turn to Calm. I do this probably a couple times a week. It is a wonderful app to help you ease stress and get the best sleep of your life. They have a library of programs designed to help you get to sleep and stay asleep, like soundscapes, guided meditations, and more than 100 sleep stories read by the the luminaries like Lucy Liu and LeVar Burton. And if you go to calm.com slash spirits, you'll get a limited time offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription, which unlocks hundreds of hours of programming. I really love the guided meditations. I started telling my therapist that I'm using them to fall asleep. And she's like, that's such a good idea. I'm like, thank you. It's because <laughs> of Calm. Calm is offering a special limited time promotion of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash spirits. That's 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library, and they add new content every week. Get started today at calm.com slash spirits, or in Long Island, that's calm.com slash spirits. And finally, we are sponsored by Dirt Cheap, which is a new podcast from Neon Hum Media that digs deep into the dollar bins of used bookstores and storage units in search of pulp and questionable grammar. It is, they say, a poolside podcast you've been waiting for. Not for us here in fall in uh, in the Northeast, but maybe it's a an autumnal drive podcast you've mm. been waiting for. So each season focuses on a forgotten or discarded pulp novel from the dustbin of literary history, and they reenact the pages of that novel through narration and sound design. And then they, of course, stop and start to comment and bring oddity and hilarity kind of into relief. And for season one, they read the book Murder in the Glass Room, which is an L.A. noir novel that almost became, but did not become, a blockbuster film. Huh. And classic of noir novels, uh, the protagonist is not a real detective, but he starts to like become a detective when his wife is murdered. Classic. He's the primary suspect. What a classic. So you don't even have to read the book to listen. You can enjoy as hosts Amanda and Jeffrey guide you chapter by chapter, um, extracting excerpts and providing their own commentary as they go. So subscribe to follow the story and solve the mystery in Dirt Cheap. Listen to the show by searching for Dirt Cheap in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. So, Amanda, you actually brought the cocktail this time. What did you bring for us? I did. I think when we are treated to a weekend Halloween, uh, particularly one this year uh, where most of us will not be going out um, and will be, uh, you know, safely inside and socializing virtually. Um, I think it's great to just kind of have like a, a drink all day situation. Drink mm. a little bit for a long time. But do it reasonably. People, we're, we're all adults here. But I really like having a, you know, a mimosa type situation. But in this case, it's something that um, Eric Silver and I make on Thanksgiving very often um, to have cold brew that you spice a bit. You can make, you know, you could do like cinnamon sticks or orange peel, star anise, like something, cardamom even, that is a nice kind of aromatic. Um, steep it overnight in your cold brew. And then the next morning you can serve it with uh, a little bit of creamer and bourbon is how we usually like to take mm-hmm. it. I like that. That sounds really good. And fights off the usual brunch cocktail problem where it's, I want to go sleep at noon now that I've drank these cocktails. <laughs> Yeah. And you can also do, if you're not super into bourbon, you can do a stout, kind of like milk stout, chocolate stout, peanut butter stout even um, is really good. And for people who don't necessarily love beer, um, stouts are often a really good way to start because it has like a flavor that you can know. And it's not sort of like inherently like fizzy or hoppy or like bitter um, that you might think if you had like one sip of beer and been like, I don't know. Stouts are a good way to go. You know what also might be a good alternative to bourbon, like a nice spiced rum? Like a little bit of a spiced rum. Definitely. Yeah, that would be good. Because like really good. a good spiced rum kind of tastes like uh, cinnamon cookies in my mind. So yeah. if you add that to some cold brew, that's probably delicious. I think you really can't go wrong adding stuff to cold brew. <laughs> <laughs> it's fair. It's fair and valid. So I want to talk about kind of what hereditary magic and hereditary witchcraft kind of look like in current like pagan and Wiccan communities. So I I was reading an article in Learn Religions about hereditary witchcraft. Again, we'll link that in the show notes, uh, which immediately points out that there's like no such thing as witch DNA. So Wiccan and paganism, those are religious practices. And just like you are born into certain religious practices because that is what your family worships it doesn't mean that you're like your blood says oh i'm catholic you know right so oftentimes the claim of being a hereditary witch in these communities comes from the idea that they can trace an ancestral link to someone who practiced witchcraft or was accused of it during the witch trials there are even like several genealogical websites and documents that allow you to trace your lineage back to the salem witch trials so uh for instance i've mentioned on the show that jake and i have been watching american horror story and one of the key plot points in the series is that the witches from coven can trace their bloodlines back to Salem in one way or another, you know? Mm -hmm. So this is a surprisingly big focus for genealogists and pagan practitioners alike. So for example, uh, big news in 2016 was that the fact that a 350-year-old manuscript uh, titled Names of Witches in Scotland 1658 was digitized. Tell me more. (laughs) So, So this allowed people to trace their supposed witch relatives back several centuries. Uh, In Scotland, between 1563 with the Scottish Witchcraft Act of the same year and 1730, 
1836, when the law was repealed, somewhere between 3,000 and 5,000 people were publicly accused of witchcraft, and at least 2,000 were killed. Man, there's so much data. This feels like a so long ago event, you know, just because culturally we want to be really separate from it. Mm -hmm. But it's staggering. Yeah, there's a Smithsonian article that breaks down all the data. And it's really interesting because their argument is saying like, oh, well, the data shows that what we believed about the witch trials is actually um, a little bit different than what we believed. So it's you can read it. It's it's fascinating. A lot of it is talking about how like only 6% of the people who were accused of witchcraft were from like nobility or the upper class. But the majority of the people who were accused were from the middle class instead of uh, more poor people. I really enjoyed um, Stacey Schiff's The Witches, which I've mentioned many times on the show before. But it's a really good account, too, of like on the ground, you know, in, in one year, 18 months, like what actually happened here. And I will note that these statistics are for the like 200 year period in Scotland and not the like. Yes, and this was for Salem yes. specifically, the witches. So uh, with the announcement of the manuscript being digitized, Christopher Hilton, who is the senior archivist at the Welcome Library, notes, quote, this manuscript offers us a glimpse into a world that often went undocumented, how ordinary people outside the mainstream of science and medicine tried to bring order and control to the world around them. This might mean charms and spells or the use of healing herbs and other types of folk magic or both. Which is precisely the argument that Liss is making. But that raises the question, did we change the source of magic in pop culture as a way of differing ourselves from a group that was being prosecuted? Or is it safe to be superstitious, to practice folk medicine as long as you know what you're doing? Don't practice folk medicine if you haven't studied it. And so the everyday person is not liable to be under persecution. So did we change what used to be magic to just quote unquote superstition? Yeah. Man, there's so much wrapped up in this. So at the end of the day, the hereditary witch uh, that we see in a lot of pop culture doesn't really exist. There is something to say about the passing down of traditions. I actually have a, a good quote on that by the author Sarah Ann Lawless, quote, the passing on of traditions through the family is a global concept and is not restricted by culture or continent. There are many family traditions existing in the United States that bear a striking resemblance to fairy doctors and cunning folk in Northern Europe, many of whom were hereditary themselves. The traditions were strict and binding. They could only teach one student from the next generation of the family of the opposite sex. In many older witchcraft families in the UK, the traditions of transferring knowledge are thought to follow similar rules. But again, this is knowledge being passed down through the generations. It's not as if they're being born with magic, but rather were born into a family of traditions and knowledge that they would eventually inherit. The biology doesn't matter as much as the context. Yes, and I think that is a, a great point to make. So the idea of hereditary witchcraft is inherently elitist, but if we look at it in a modern context, if you look at it in the idea of the passing down of traditions rather than being your special because you have this certain bloodline, you get into the whole dynamic of being like, well, blood relatives don't really matter. And you're learning something because your family has chose to learn it and to pass it down and keep the tradition alive for 
decades and centuries and millennia. Just like gender. I think hereditary magic is a social construct. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I guess uh, I would love to open this up at the end here, Amanda, by asking you if you have a preference when you're consuming fantasy pop culture. Do you prefer the hereditary magic, the I was born special and now I get to learn magic? Or do you prefer the idea of like the transference of knowledge or the transference of power from something higher? I like the latter for all of the sort of contextual um, reasons that we've discussed in the episode today, but also because I really love logistics. I'm like an Oregon Trail person. I'm a Stardew Valley person. Uh, of, of late, I spent all October playing Stardew Valley. But I love this idea of like how, you know, with nuts and bolts, like how do we get from here to there? How do we get from layperson to magic user? How do we get from um, no presence of magic in one's daily life to magic having a lot of influence in a society or in a world, um, which is why I love kind of world building discussions and exercises like on Exolore and in speculative fiction and in sci-fi, like novels and and works of all kinds that deal with sort of how do we set up a society and like how practically do we get there? I don't like need receipts on all the physics, you know, <laughs> but I, I do need some uh, sense of like how did the world that we are telling the story in come to be, whether that's as small as, you know, one person's journey from, you know, layperson to magic user, or if it's, you know, this society is predicated on magic in so many ways. And like, this is how, like, this is where it comes from. Um, and this is how we got here. I know you love the logistics of a magic system. That is one of the things I, I love about talking media with you. I do. And I, I haven't mentioned it yet, but um, the Rivers of London series by Ben Aronovich, which I have recommended um, just in the beginning of the show before, uh, but that is also a very logistically and like physics, you know, um, centered magic system that I find so satisfying. Uh, Dresden Files is another similar example to that too, right? I haven't read them personally, but I know you've talked about it to me before. Yeah. Lots of, um, you know, magic takes energy and, <laughs> you know, what do you do when you run out? Like, there, there's at some point a bottom to your magical reserves. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about how one of my favorite examples of because you said like, how does one go from a life where magic isn't there and then going into a life where magic is there? And one of my favorite examples is just the like right place at the right time person where it's like, oh, I accidentally yeah. stumbled onto this magical mystery and now I'm being pulled into a world of hidden magic. I love that so much because it does play into the idea of like, usually when that person gets dragged into the world of magic, they learn that they can do magic, but it's usually like, oh, well, either they have an inherent skill for it like you know some people just like naturally have very good abs and like i wish i was one <laughs> of those people and so i i like that it's either that or it's like oh well now you get to learn with this master while we also solve the problem of where the fairy queen's crown is or something like that yeah and it also gets to the fact that a lot of life is serendipitous and there are tons of what ifs that we could all run scenario wise like of our own lives all the time um and a lot of the time you know what people may think later in life is uh, a consequence of uh, personal, you know, efforts is in fact a constellation of coincidence, luck, circumstance, privilege, all of that. Oh, I'm just thinking of now a constellation of people accidentally bumping into each other and very cute meet cutes and stuff like that. And I want more magical meet cutes. Me too. I would read the heck out of that. Someone write me a magical me cute. Please, that's one thing I want. I want recommendations of magical me cute. Yes, please. Yes. Send us an email titled Magical Meat Cute and we'll check it out. Hell yeah. Maybe we'll do like a roundup of magical meat cute books or something like that at some point. We will. And uh to return to Halloween Town, I think this is really fun. 
I think I think there is a lot of, you know, I, I appreciate it as a opportunity to talk about magical world building um, and systems of magic. And it's also a nice movie to have on in the background um, and something that if you haven't experienced it yet or if you did in the 90s and you want to rewatch something fun um, and that doesn't, you know, that doesn't take a ton of uh, emotional energy. I think this is a really good pick for you. Yeah, I think that I want to rewatch it again so I can try to point out all of the different magical and mythological creatures that are featured in Halloween Town and like what their silly little jobs are and stuff. I think that would be a lot of fun to just kind of pick apart. That would be fun. I think you can, uh, if you rewatch Halloween Town this week, send us a, a screenshot on Insta and tag us in your favorite mythological creature or mythology in joke in Halloween Town. Yes, please. That would be adorable. Well, Julia, thank you. And I hope that you have a, a absolutely wonderful end of Halloween, which is your favorite month of the year. Thank Halloween you. Month. Halloween month. I you love know, it. September, Halloween, November. Mm, that's how it works. That is. Yeah. That's uh, They specifically didn't name it after a, a Roman thing this time. Yay. <laughs> and remember, listeners, to stay creepy and stay cool. Thanks again to our sponsors at stitchfix.com slash spirits. You can get 25% off when you keep your whole box at calm.com slash spirits. You can get 40% off a calm premium subscription and the new podcast dirt cheap is available in any podcast player. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafidi, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us your urban legends at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast for all kinds of behind the scenes stuff. Just one dollar gets you access to audio extras with so much more available too. Recipe cards, director's commentaries, exclusive merch, and real physical gifts. We are a founding member of Multitude, a collective of independent audio professionals. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. And above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please share us with your friends. That is the very best way to help us keep on growing. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.